Today is Tuesday, May 10th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the U.S. accuses Moscow of forcefully transporting Ukrainians into Russian territories as fighting rages. We do have indications that Ukrainians are being taken against their will into Russia. Certainly another indication that he simply won't accept and respect Ukrainian sovereignty. Vote counting continues as the Philippines await a new president. We're still waiting because as of today, there's still 92.81% election results process. There are still a number of official ballots that still need to transmit. And dozens of inmates killed as rival gangs clash in a jail in Ecuador. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says the United States has seen indications that some Ukrainians are being moved to Russia against their will. During a briefing with reporters, Kirby spoke of camps where Ukrainians are being held, and while he rejected to talk about the number of camps or the conditions in there, he called the actions, quote, unconscionable, unquote. Last week, Russia's defense ministry said more than 11,500 people, including 1,847 children, were transported from Ukraine into Russia without the participation of Kyiv authorities. Russia says the people have been evacuated at their own request, while Ukraine has said Moscow has forcefully deported thousands of people to Russia since the war's beginning. Ukraine's defense ministry says since February 24th, nearly 200,000 children and 1.1 million people have been evacuated from Ukraine into Russia. We do have indications that Ukrainians are being taken against their will into Russia. Not the behavior of responsible power. Certainly another indication that he simply won't accept and respect Ukrainian sovereignty and that they are citizens of another nation. Again, you don't have to look very far to see evidence of Russian brutality here. Continued. We're on day 75, which means 75 days of brutalizing the nation of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. And every time you think they just can't fall to a new low, they prove you wrong. That's Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby. The UN Children's Fund UNICEF reports the war in Ukraine is having a devastating impact on children with tens of thousands requiring psychological and social care. A psychologist and child counselor with Save the Children speaks with Flashpoint Ukraine Steve Miller via Skype about a group's effort to help those affected by the trauma of war. Does flash the children that are coming out of Ukraine now and who have been coming, obviously, because they have been on the run since the beginning of the war, they are in different places depending on what, obviously, what they have experienced and what they have seen. Generally speaking, when we see children affected by war and children who have to flee their own country, what we sometimes experience is that the children who get out first, that is, who manage to leave their country before war actually starts for real, or when they've only seen a little bit, are sometimes less affected than the children who stay behind or for some reasons it takes longer for them to get out. What we're seeing now obviously is children who have very much, especially from the larger cities that have been very much affected by bombings and shootings, children who have seen massive attacks and who have seen horrible things and they're obviously very affected. In what ways? I mean, what are you seeing when you start working with the children? One thing that we meet when we meet children who have come directly from war is that they can seem somehow much calmer than you would expect. They seem almost a little bit sort of tranquilized. You cannot necessarily engage them in a conversation where they would do as children perhaps do normally, which is to, you know, experience, you know, exhibit being happy or being sad. They seem sort of a bit numbed to the experience. You can also meet children 
who will be very much affected, agitated very easily to begin uh, to cry, and children who have difficulties understanding what they have experienced. If you ask them, they won't necessarily be able to put what they have experienced into any kind of chronological order or any kind of story that will make sense to someone from the outside. So, you know, your organization and others are providing much-needed mental health care for these kids. What kind of impact do you see short term and how can it, I guess, be manifested or were the concerns long term because this conflict doesn't appear to be ending anytime soon? One thing that we do and that other organizations obviously are doing as well when we meet children for the first time right after they leave Ukraine is to give them as much as possible, obviously, a sense of safety and a sense of that they can sort of begin to relax, at least in terms of their own safety, because they are now in a place where they will not be murdered, where they're physically um, okay. And this is something that you have to tell them with words, because even though it might be obvious for someone else that you're in a different country, no one is going to come after you here, what they have experienced is so, in many cases, so harrowing that they won't necessarily know it unless you say so. That's Flashpoint's Ukraine Steve Miller speaking via Skype with Anna Lemke, a psychologist and child counselor with Save the Children. President Joe Biden has signed into law the Ukraine Land Lease Act. It revives a World War II-era program that will allow Ukraine to more efficiently request weapons to repair Russia's invasion. The bill, passed with overwhelming bipartisan support, is similar to legislation passed in 1941 that helped U.S. allies defeat the Nazis. VOA's Pentagon correspondent Carla Bob takes us to a base in Fairbanks, Alaska, which was vital to the original 1941 Land Lease Agreement. Welcome to Fort Wainwright. Today, soldiers come here to learn how to fight and survive in the brutally cold Arctic terrain. But before World War II, this base was just a remote military outpost known as Lad Field. After allies went to war to stop Germany's aggressive military annexations, Congress in 1941 established a Lend-Lease Act to supply military aid and weapons to Russia and others fighting Germany and the Axis powers. Lad Field, right here, was the final transfer point for that program. From 1941 to 1945, American pilots delivered nearly 8,000 aircraft to Russian pilots, who then flew them across the Bering Strait to Russian territory. Just a few minutes' drive from here, in the heart of Fairbanks, there is a monument honoring the military cooperation between Russia and the United States. But today, that cooperation feels like ancient history. Russia is now the aggressor in Europe. Its deadly invasion of Ukraine condemned by much of the world. I went to that monument with Alaskan Senator Dan Sullivan, who sits on the Armed Services Committee and who spoke to me about Congress's new Lend-Lease Act. There's a couple great quotes on this statue, but it talks about um, Winston Churchill saying that American um, industrial production was what was key to win winning the war in Europe. We pass another version of the Lend-Lease program. It was actually called the Lend-Lease program with the goal of getting equipment, as qu American equipment, as quickly as possible to the Ukrainians to defeat the Russians. So it's about a 180 in terms of the whole point of Lend-Lease, but obviously Russia is now the target, not the beneficiary. 
The United States has so far provided nearly $4 billion in arms and equipment to Ukraine since Russia invaded on February 24th. And President Biden has asked Congress for $33 billion in additional funds for Ukraine through September. Carla Babb, VOA News, Fairbanks, Alaska. South Korea's departing liberal president has defended his policy of engaging North Korea. Moon Jae-in said in his farewell speech that he hopes efforts to restore peace between the Koreans will continue. Moon leaves office this week following a single five-year term. He will hand over presidential power to conservative Yoon sung Yo. Yoon has accused Moon of being, quote, subservient, unquote, to North Korea and plans to take a tougher stance on the North Korea's nuclear program. For more on the achievements of Moon and the challenges facing the new administration, I spoke with Darcy Drought, foreign policy analyst and postdoctoral fellow for the George Washington University Institute for Korean Studies. So the Moon Jae-in administration that's going to be leaving the Blue House this week did some significant improvements initially in the the South-North relationship, the most significant being a few summits bilaterally between North and South Korea, Certainly the trilateral summits with Donald Trump really signaled for many an important change that at the time forebode an improvement in relations. And yet, of course, that has stalled since then um, following the North Korea-United States summit in Hanoi in 2019. Things have kind of... The other achievements that the Moon Jae-in administration made certainly were first when he came into office. It was on the heels of large-scale civil society movement against the previous administration and their corruption within the government. And so he was able to unite the country after that previous lack of faith in the president's office. The second thing that he did was a rapid and positive response to the COVID pandemic. What are the challenges facing the new administration that's coming to the Blue House? Two significant challenges for the union administration coming in. One is domestic and one is international. The domestic one, the election this year really revealed some underlying social cleavages, particularly among the younger generations in South Korea. A lot of these fall along gender lines and we saw how the conservatives in this administration really sought to politicize an anti-feminist movement that had been gaining traction among especially younger Koreans, men aged 20s and some in their 30s as well. So this social cleavage is really something that the UN administration will need to, to handle head on, whether it means backtracking on some of the language that he and his campaign used, whether it means ignoring it, whether it means uh, instituting some policies to help foster national unity again. This is something that I think is going to be extremely important for this administration. The second one is going to be the the North-South issue. And last week, North Korea has launched some ballistic missiles, which are counter to UN sanctions, EU sanctions, US sanctions. They're basically rebuffing a lot of the the work that the Moon Jae-in administration had done. The UN administration is going to need to decide how and to what degree of force um, it's going to be. Only conservatives, of which UN one has a, a track record of, of a more hardline policy toward North Korea. And so th- this is going to be something that they, in consultation with their allies, the United States are going to have to grapple with quite 
quickly in their administration takes office this week. President Moon, in his farewell speech, called for extra effort for peace with North Korea. Do you think this is possible? Do you think this will work? Do you think the North is interested in some kind of rapprochement with uh, Seoul? And that's a really difficult challenge that obviously has been plaguing South Korea for the past 70 years since the country was divided in the 1950s. The difficulty, I think, for Yoon is going to be the fact that the North issue is a political issue in South Korea. That's to say it's divided along party lines largely. And so Yoon, from his conservative vantage point, is going to be concerned about taking a harder line approach. The progressives, of which Moon Jae-in was one, tend to favor a more conciliatory approach towards North Korea. And so given the country has been divided during this contentious past election, it's going to be very hard for Yoon to pull that off politically. That's Darcy Drought, foreign policy analyst and postdoctorate fellow for the George Washington University Institute for Korean Studies. She spoke with me from Washington, D.C. In other news, the government of Ecuador says dozens of inmates were killed during a riot earlier on Monday as rival gangs clashed in a jail in the city of Santo Domingo in the latest episode of prison violence that has rocked the South American country. Interior Minister Patrico Carrillo told reporters that 108 prisoners remain at large and 112 have been recaptured. Authorities said the riot broke out after a gang leader was transferred to Santo Domingo's Bella Vista prison following a court order which may have caused arrest among prisoners. Both the Interior Ministry and the Attorney General's office reported that 43 prisoners had died. Most of them have been stabbed to death. The riot was the latest incidence of violence in Ecuadorian prisons, which the government attributes to fight between gangs over control of territory and drug trafficking routes. Last year, 316 prisoners died during riots in various prisons across Ecuador. For more, remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. Vote counting continues in the Philippines, but the son and namesake of ousted dictator Ferdinand Marcos has taken a commanding lead in an unofficial count in the presidential election. With over 80% of the votes counted, Marcos Jr. had 25.9 million, far ahead of his closest challenger, current Vice President Lenny Robredo, a champion of human rights, who had 12.3 million. Outgoing President Duterte's daughter, Southern Davao City Mayor Sarah Duterte, is Marcos Jr.'s vice presidential running mate in an alliance of the sons of two authoritarian leaders who concern human rights groups. For more, I spoke with reporter Stanley Gahete. That's reporter Stanley Gahete speaking with me from Manila. Afghan journalists and activists who fled to Pakistan after the time. still waiting because as of today, there's still 92.81% election results process. There are still a number of official ballots that still need to transmit uh, coming from different polling places. Although the issue here in the Philippines yesterday is the many defected vote counting machines which led to the slow turnout of votes and slow processing of everything. So many are wondering how come that it reached already 92.81% when in fact everyone was wondering about the slow and defected vote counting machines. It went immediately 
smooth after the deadline of 7 p.m. and everything went well. So it became so fast when in fact during the voting exercise yesterday, the whole day, almost all polling places in the Philippines have malfunctioned vote counting machines. So we're still waiting because many are still transmitting their data to the uh, election server. So most probably within the week, we can determine immediately the next leader of this country. However, the Commission on Election will also release this Tuesday the disqualification case of presidential candidate Bongbong Marcos. So we're also still waiting because as long as there's no proclamation yet, we don't know if what will happen next if the second to the lead, which is Vice President Lenny Robredo, will place him in case Bongbong Marcos will be disqualified in these cases that he's currently facing. But how did the election go? We're hearing reports, especially from the opposition, of either rigging of the elections or election malpractices. Actually, it's hard to say that there are malpractices, that there are alleged cheating for now. Because despite the fact that there are malfunctioned and defected vote counting machines, based on the previous surveys, on the weekly surveys released by different official tally boards and different survey organizations, former Senator Bombo Marcos really led the survey, gave so many points compared ahead of uh, Vice President Lenny Robredo. And based on the results of surveys, of previous surveys, former Senator Bongbong Marcos gained strong points, especially on the class D and E of the society or those nearing a poverty line, we can describe that level, the society level. But with us and to the upper class, the A, B, and C, President Lenny Robredo, who led the previous survey. So when we all know that the masses the public has the largest number of voters, the class DNA. Maybe that's why now Ferdinand uh, Bongo Marcos still also led the voting counts on the 2022 national elections. That's reporter Stanley Gahete speaking with me from Manila. Afghan journalists and activists who fled to Pakistan after the Taliban seized power in Afghanistan in August 2021 said they are worried about their future in Pakistan and call on international community to help them relocate to a third country. VOS Wahid Faizi has more. Afghan journalists and activists who managed to flee the Taliban's rule in Afghanistan have appealed to the international community for assistance. They say that they are unsafe in Pakistan because of the Taliban's influence in that country. The Taliban imposed strict restrictions on journalists and the media in Afghanistan after regaining control last year. Media Watchdog International Federation of Journalists estimates that between 600 and 1,000 journalists have fled Afghanistan and 230 to 300 media institutions have closed, according to new research. In Pakistan, Afghan refugees are pleading with the international community not to forget about them. Some Afghan refugees protested in front of the UNSCR office in Islamabad, demanding they be relocated to a third country. Many made the symbolic gesture of tearing up the registration tokens that qualified them for a second interview about resettlements. They say they have been in Pakistan eight months and are still waiting. Following the Taliban's takeover of power in Afghanistan in August 2021, 
the United States and its allies evacuated thousands of Afghans who were in danger. Thousands of Afghans, meanwhile, have migrated to neighboring countries to escape the Taliban's rule. Wahid Faizi for VUN News. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. Fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 16:30 and 18:30 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on the Voice of America. for listening, visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at VOAnews.com. Until next time, I am Junior Ruffa in Washington wishing you a great day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. A brutal ISIS terrorist faced justice in April when he was found guilty of participating in the heinous acts that led to the violent kidnapping, torture, and deaths of American aid workers and journalists, as well as the deaths of British and Japanese nationals in Syria. A federal jury in Virginia convicted former British citizen El Shafi El Sheikh for his role in a hostage-taking scheme that held more than two dozen people captive during the Islamic State's reign of terror between 2012 and 2015. The scheme resulted in the murder of three American men, journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, and humanitarian aid worker Peter Kasich, and one woman, aid worker Kayla Muller. The three men were beheaded, and their murders were filmed and used for propaganda videos. Kayla Muller was forced into sexual slavery and repeatedly raped by Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi before she died under unknown circumstances. In a statement, the U.S. Department of Justice noted that evidence presented during the trial showed that el-Sheikh and two other ISIS members, dubbed the Beatles by the hostages because of their British accents, supervised the terrorist organization's jails and detention facilities at which the hostages were held. They were known for engaging in a prolonged pattern of physical and psychological violence against hostages. Thirty-five witnesses testified during the trial, including 12 former hostages who detailed violent and persistent beatings, sexual assaults, waterboarding, and forcible exposure to the murder of other hostages. The jury found El Sheikh guilty on all eight counts, including hostage-taking resulting in death, conspiring to murder Americans outside the United States, and conspiring to provide material support to terrorists. El Sheikh faces a mandatory sentence of life in prison and is scheduled to be sentenced in August.
After the verdict, Diane Foley, mother of slain journalist James Foley, praised the American justice system, pointing out that El Sheikh had four attorneys defending him. El Shafi El Sheikh was treated with a great deal of mercy, she said. Hopefully, we were able to turn this into justice, not revenge. The case also highlights that either in a court of law or on the battlefield, a message for terrorists sent by President Biden earlier this year holds fast. We will come after you and find you. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 